Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of Get in the Cipher. For those of you who don't know, this is Christina Jones, a.k.a. iPad, a.k.a. Jonesy, the host of this delicious and amazing podcast brought to you today at the Community Book Center, one of the most beloved places in the city of New Orleans for gathering, learning, book buying, thinking, and just all around being. And today we are joined by Mama Vera Warren and Mama Jennifer Turner, who are going to be doing what they do normally when you walk in the bookstore, but instead on the mic today, which means dropping all the jewels, giving all the knowledge, and asking all of the questions for you to ponder and consider. So I want to say welcome, Mama Jennifer. Say hi to the people. Hi to the people. <laughs> Power too. Absolutely power too. And thanks for joining us on the podcast today. So listen, folks, this is not your traditional podcast, right? We are on location in the community. If we say we're about community, culture, and connection, then you will see us in these streets with our ring light and our intrepid, amazing producer, mechanical engineer, marketing major, Anissa Parks, who's on in the background and doesn't like to be talked about. But our goal here is to be in the streets. And so today we're in these streets. Mama Jen. Yes. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. 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 You know, the school is out. No more virtual for a minute. Now my goal is to repair. Even though the teachers were amazing where he went, my grandson attended it's still you have to get get their little minds together. So, a lot of Legos, dominoes, Scrabble. Mm-hmm. He cheats at Scrabble already, so you know he, he get Speaking of Scrabble, uh, offline, you know we were trying to uh, get Mama Jenna not talk with while we set up because she was just dropping all kinds of amazing things for us to think about. But you were talking about your grandson and learning about and uh, and understanding algorithms today and. Specifically, when it comes to sort of the literate word, you were talking about that game word collector. You want to yeah, tell us? Tell it, us what? Tell us what a, you picked up in, in learning it's, about it's, the algorithm. It's a it's a book where this little brother is by Peter 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 Abrams. I think that's the the author's name, Peter Abrams, and it's called the word collector. And what he does is this this young man, he sees a word, he collects the word, and he happens paste them all in albums or have them in a wagon. And it had got so many that he went up to the top of a hill and he just let them fly, nothing but words coming down. And as in, it's interesting, you know, inter, what I call it, intergenerational uh, learning with technology and old folks and what, they, what little they know. They know how to pick up the phone, but that's about it. All the rest of the stuff is, you know, so, but if you get the, the the youth to teach you what it is about these about these these, these machine and all of this other thing, it, it's great. So, and so you take a old 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 stories like why mosquitoes bulls in people's ears, you know, and it's talking about one of the things is the greater the smaller the mind, the greater the conceit. Is one thing that you learn. Not for us here in the South South, we uh, learn about uh, speaking to people. If you don't speak to people, there are certain things that happen along, you know, things that happen, the domino effect of what happens. And so, you know, so all of these things is in, in stories like that, if you know how to pull them 
if you know how to pull them out if you think. So therefore, that's where the critical thinking skills come in. You have Zomo the Rabbit. Zomo the Rabbit, he teaches about sequential order. He also teaches what's the difference between being clever and having wisdom. There is a difference. There is a difference. But stories are such an intricate part of it. If, 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 if we don't know, if we don't sit down at elders' feet, and just listen to what they're saying, you know. I don't know what was going to happen to the youth, you know. What they say, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, that is what they say. Thank you for that, and thank you for the intergenerational connection between, like, you know, these devices use these logarithms to figure out, you know, what you want to do, what you want to learn, what you're interested in, you know. How many times have you opened up your phone and been thinking about something and started typing the first two letters and the phone was like, you want to know about mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, like you said, Mama Jen, there's kind of a missed opportunity, right? When we don't connect what the elders know, which some would say might feel like analog, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with what the young people are able to process and mm-hmm. see, which is this logarithm, right? Or mm-hmm. algorithm, right? And I think that's why the community book center is so important, right? Like we were just talking earlier about how people come in here And you better have some time, right? Because you're not going to want to walk away from whatever discussion is being had. And so I know Mama Vera is going to kind of give us the background on how y'all got here. How she got here. Yeah. Well, I met her at the zoo. How did you get here? I met her at the zoo. Okay. This is big. They had, we used to have what they call, what they call this thing, um, Black Heritage Festival. It was at the zoo. The first time it held, must have been in 83 must have been in 83 or something like that. Anyway, they had people like Kaia, Livers, and Donald Lewis, and all these actors, community actors and national actors, dressed up as, as characters, you know, like Harriet Tubman or not so much Sojourner Truth. I'm talking about down here. What's her name? Marie uh, Laveau. Okay. And, uh, you know, all these, right. you know, uh, Norbert Rio and all these characters, and they walk around, and they would give a brief history of themselves, of that character that they portrayed, and the kids would have to guess who they were. So, naturally, you know, my sister and I, she had free tickets, as, you know, just to see by getting the people out there. And so we didn't know what it, she didn't know what it was about. I didn't know what it was about. We just went. So we were sitting up there, so we walked around the zoo. The boys were big enough to understand, you know, okay, well, let's meet back kids, such and such. So, okay. So that's what we did. So we had them. So we were sitting around, and then they came, and they said, Ma, come see. You got Harry Tubman and all these other characters walking around here. I said, boy, get away from me. So he you know, said, come on, come on. <laughs> so then they said, Ma. You got a lady over there. She got books just like we have. Mm-hmm. And I say, what? Say, yeah, she got a bookstore. So that's how I met Vera, you know, and her sister. They were out there, and they had this beautiful display of books. And I'm saying, whoa, where I been? And so, you know, that's how we met. And mm-hmm. so uh, one day I was looking for this book by Mark Matabane. It's called Café Boy. And I was looking for that particular book. And so I said, so she took the order, and it looked like it was taking forever. So then I just went into the store. She was on Poland Avenue at the time. Mm-hmm. And I went into it. I said, where's my coffee boy? Where is my coffee boy? And everybody know what coffee means mm-hmm. if you don't look it up. So anyway, <laughs> so 
anyway, you know, that's how we got to talking. And so always, and so I was telling my sister about it. And, you know, she was a teacher and everything. And they used to have a conference called the Quest Conference. You ever heard of that? I forget what that comes, but it's a Quest Conference. And these, well, they had, it was mostly, you know, like, and they had the Udno Conference. They had the Quest Conference. Mm-hmm. And they would have different speakers coming in talking about teaching our kids. And um, it's much like this book I'm, you know, reading now, and they could have called it We Be Loving Black Children. Mm -hmm. And they use that B as past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, with uh, Dr. Joyce King and uh, Swenson and all these other educators. And not only in this little book, not only did they just use, not only did they just use the, the because just like they said, it's not anti-white or anything of that nature. That's in your head if you if you think it is. But it's talking about how do we teach our children literature throughout the diaspora. Because, you know, as they said, oh, they didn't want to use the 1619. They want to use the 1619. Pick a year. Right. Pick a year. So is this book, is this is how you made this connection with Mama Vera at this at this conference? At, at this conference, well, yeah, with the boys, you know, they said, come on, Mom, come see, you know. And so I remember picking up for them The Adventures of Pretty Pearl mm-hmm. by Virginia Hamilton. You mm-hmm. ever read that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was excellent book to get kids to understand. Dorishas, even though they didn't say it. Even though get, they didn't say it. Yeah, yeah. To get the kids Mrs. to Mrs. Bagley gave me that book. <laughs> Mrs. Bagley gave me many a book. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, so here is, uh, said one of the particular, because her, her godfather was John the Conqueror. And she was up there, you know, how they be up there in the heavens, you know, and they're up there in the heavens. And she was a trickster. Oh, she was a trickster. And so because... Not that her siblings were dumb. She was just smart. So he saw what she was doing. And so he was sitting and he was trying to explain how to use your power. Right. How to use your power and and what do you use your powers for? And so he showed and opened up the sky and let them see all of our people going through the sojourn after the breach, uh, not breach, not the levy. Same difference, huh? And not, not too the, much different. Breaching uh, the levy, yeah, uh, transatlantic slave the, trade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there so this is. is after the, the, the slave, uh, so-called after the enslavement. And she sees this one, and she sees how they walking mopedly and just dragging and everything. And so she says, what is that? Tells it's hunger. Hunger? I don't like hunger. You know, so these are things. So these are books that the children can read to learn how to critically think that when they're taking these tests, not only these standardized tests, that they have enough information inside of their heads that they're able to take a paragraph of any kind and make it such that they can explain what is going on. That's critically thinking. And so you were talking about this this, this book, The Adventures of I can't remember the name of Pearly. What was it called again? Uh, the Adventures of Pretty Pearl. A Pretty Pearl in the context of your sons. And so is this sort of, I feel like Mama Jen, when you walk in the store, when we walk in the store and we're looking for things to read, one of the most amazing things about this bookstore is that y'all are both really, really knowledgeable about what's in these books, right? Boy. That are in your store, right? And you can say to us, you know, it's almost like you. It's like a gift y'all have, right? Where you can like, I can ask you about a book, and you almost know like what I'm actually trying to find out or learn. Mm-hmm. You'll be like, okay, 
That's a good one. But how about this other book? And so when I hear you talk about your sons and taking them to the Black Heritage Festival and exposing them to these books and then meeting Mama Vera there and, you know, picking this particular book, what in that moment of doing all of these things you were doing for your own children and probably for other children outside of this place before you were even in this place, what led you to want to, I consider this to be like your place in space now, like this is the place you occupy for us to to sit at the feet of elders, really. Mm-hmm. And what what got you here and what keeps you here? What got me here was Vera calling me up on the phone. I was at the library. <laughs> she calling me up on the phone talking about, what you doing, Black? <laughs> I said, nothing. I didn't know what she said. Look, I need you to come by the bookstore. That's when they, they, she had moved to Ursuline. Mm-hmm. I need for you to come by the bookstore. I said, okay. So I came by the bookstore and, and so... She introduced me to, i never forget, she introduced, I, the memory, that part of my life, that memory, that's a, that's a scary thing. Is it? Mm-hmm. 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 And it's scary. A little bit. Mm-hmm. It's scary. Yeah. I, I remember this, uh, I did, the first show I did for it was at Jazz Fest, and must have been 90, 90, I mean 90, something like that. Anyway. No, he's an eighty-nine or ninety. Eighty-nine is a very uh, pivotal summer. Pivotal summer in this the life of this New Yorker. So yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> a lot happened in the summer of nineteen eighty-nine. So, but I remember you know, and so I think the the next one that when I did a, a show for her, they had it in. The, we were outside, and they had this little little white man. He he bought books from it the first time. Just had that. Just gotten out there. Just he bought, he bought Doctor Ben books, and he bought bought Martin Bernal. I want to say he bought Martin Bernal. It's been so long ago. The and fact that you remember what this man specifically bought in 1989 at Jazz Fest is amazing to me. Like, yes, that is definitely scary in some ways, but in other ways, I think it's like the most amazing just, just gift that, delivered to you by the divine. Is that's that you right. can recall these things that's so right. vividly. The next time I met him, I hadn't seen him in a while. So the next time I met him, I just stood. I looked. I said, uh, I know you. He said, no, you don't know me. I said, yeah, I know you. And I, I proceeded to tell him, I said, you from Chicago? He said, yeah. And I told him the books that he had ordered. He said, yeah. I mean, you know, gotten. And I said, I can't pronounce your last name, but, it's, but you were a civil rights lawyer. And it starts with a V. He mm-hmm. said, yes. He said, whoa. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, I'd love to have you on the stand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know exactly what happened, when it happened, what time it was. It's almost like, you know, my favorite television character Miss is Sophia on Golden Girls, right? And she oh, yeah. Like, Picture it. Yeah. 1942. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so you, you so you did these fest, you did these shows for Mama Vera, mm-hmm. and so when did you start like being in the bookstore, like deciding when working she just in the book- she said, "What you doing, Black?" That's the, <laughs> and the rest is Black history. And that rest, you know, you know. So you know what you're doing. I gotta do such as I said. Okay. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You know, they used to ask me, Mama Jen, when you gonna get your own bookstore? I said, "Shit, you know." Oh, excuse me. You don't support this one half the time. Right. Right alone want to start another bookstore. Well, I start. Yeah. This leads to another really important question, right? Because we, I'm a voracious reader, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the inspiration for this podcast is 
reconnecting people with the word, mm-hmm. both the heard word, the performed word, the written word, you know, the spoken word. And one of the reasons I'm a voracious reader is because I had these grandparents, right? My grandparents were voracious readers and voracious music listeners. Mm-hmm. All their children played instruments. And they always took me to this. My favorite bookstore was this tiny little bookstore called Bercelli's. There's this tiny little bookstore. I lived out. My parents we left New York City and lived in the suburbs, and they had this tiny little bookstore. And it was like the perfect place to go. And they, everybody who was in there knew about all the books and knew about all the series and all the things mm-hmm. and like would like let me sit in the back of the store on the floor and flip through the books till I got ready to buy one. You know, like I would, kids were going to the mall to go to Sam Goody or Tower Records, right? I was going there too, but I was going to the bookstore first. When that bookstore closed and it became, it got bought by B. Dalton, mm. I was heartbroken mm. because all of a sudden it felt like the most impersonal place mm-hmm. to go buy a book. Mm-hmm. And I feel like books are an intimate experience. Ooh, very much so. You know, Ooh, very much. So. And so you guys have survived a lot over the years. Mm. Right. That's a lot of traveling, too. Yeah. That's a lot of traveling, setting up. That's a lot of uh, storytelling. That's a, that's, that's a lot. I remember doing somebody they had a, a, a teacher coming to the young teacher coming to the bookstore. And I looked at her dress and I said, wait a minute, that's diagrams? She said, yes. I said, Lord, they don't even diagram anymore, I don't think, in the schools. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you learn what is the. Right. What is an article? Right. What is an article? What is a preposition? What complements what? That's why they came right now. It is very true. Yeah. My good friend and uh, former business partner, Larry Irvin, he's a, a major, he's a writer, right? And we still write things together. And he still thinks in the sentence diagram, right? Yeah. Sometimes to. when I am writing something, he'll be like, he does just like we do in, we used to do in grammar class. He'll be like, well, Chris, if you change this and you go ing, ing, you know, you're making a list of active verbs. They have to have the same ending. You can't be like, I'm going, she did, et cetera. It has to be ing, ing, ing. And I'm like, oh, yeah. If I take out the and I just make them individual, we don't teach like that anymore. Right. So it's kind of hard for a kid to even be able to say, oh, this is an indirect object. And when you use an indirect object, you have to be able to take word out and it still makes sense right not unless you're writing like genevieve smitherman who wrote wrote, uh what is it talking that talk or talking that talk whatever you know she Mm. you know where you take you know say when you're looking at things like english by jl dillard right and when he said you know when they used to send a little the master's son over there to the enslavement uh shacks to learn how to speak when they sent them to Oxford or someplace mm-hmm. like that. Right. Because if you read Opala Disa's Big Face, she talks about the language. That's a very important part of our language, the yeah. language. Yes, it is very important. Very important because if you say, how you doing? I is, and that's correct mm-hmm. because you're existing right now. Right. I is. I is. I always am. So uh-huh. there you go. Right. Uh-huh. I is. I, yeah. I think that's the other thing that is wonderful about bookstores like Community Book Center. And there are so few black owned community based bookstores mm-hmm. left in the country. But what's interesting is this resurgence 
of people wanting to go to the bookstore, which I find to be fascinating. Right. Everything comes back to where it's supposed to be. That's mm-hmm. the way I see it. Right. You know what I mean? There's only so much I can get out of this iPad. Right. And it's interesting to read the articles and the blogs and such. But there is something spiritual about booking, picking up a book, turning the page mm-hmm. and waiting for what's going to happen mm-hmm. on the next page. You know, you know what? I just finished reading again. What? Tuck Everlasting. I haven't read that book in a hundred years. That's a good book. Ah. That is a good book to consider. Ah. All, all the things to consider in that book. All yeah. the things to consider. But you know, you, you saw the, well, anyway, I, w- I would like to take sentences from the youth. I'd say from fourth, I'd take fourth, fifth, and sixth sentences it would be like a contest Mm -hmm. and they would have to write a sentence then they would have to then the seven eight ninth would have to diagram the sentence and then 10th 11th and 12th would have to create a city of diagrams that'd be really something Mm -hmm. but you know here's the thing don't know that they're teaching children how to sentence diagram at all well, I know anymore. That. I just you was know? missing. Yeah. You know. I think maybe the only school that, that might be the Waldorf school <laughs> when you get to sixth grade. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but they, the, full, the, the, the sentences would not be interesting. No. Because no. they would have to go inside of their community, but used to be. That's all I could say. Yeah. I think there's a lot, there's a lot lost for children, period, right? I think there's specifically, and and we know egregiously, some things left off the table and out of the reach of our young black children in the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You know, I say all the time, it amazes me that people I know in education don't have their kids in the public school, but my community development friends, even if they figured out how to center a Heinz or et cetera, et cetera, believe to some degree that public education is something we need to invest in. Now, whether they agree that the system <laughs> is the way it should be, I think you could probably say that most of us agree those of us who are in public education or our children are working or going to school in public education something has to change however i have noticed that across the country even in our other schools children are not getting the education they need right like i got kids who were in my graduate school at you know graduate school classes who got to graduate school right they clearly passed the gmat right uh who are horrible writers like sentence you know verb Agreement. Noun agreement? No, you know what I mean. Like none of that. Because they don't read enough. They don't read enough, and they're not writing enough. And schools across the nation are even not if emphasizing. They read, even read. if they read short stories, even if they read something like Memory of Ken or Black Eyed Susan or, or the Greatest Negro Short Stories, you know, the, anything like that, you know, any if it, blood, what what is it, Bloodline by Ernest Gaines or short story, you know, just. Short stories, you know, J. California Cooper, anybody, you know, just, you know, because I know their attention span isn't that long now since since this in the age of technology, you know, that they, they don't, they can't keep a, a sentence in their head, you know, a, a, a whole book in their head, you know, know that. But, but eventually they would be able to do that if they read short pieces. Absolutely. Um, I yeah. mean, I think sometimes that we use technology as an excuse to say that children don't have the attention. They, they got the same shorter sentence span they always had. The difference is we have to make, and for my opinion, we have to make more effort to connect them to other things that make them slow down. Like you told the story about the sloth earlier, right? Slowly. It's slowly. But, boy. Right? Sloth went off. 
when Cheetah, I believe it was Cheetah said, but you're so lazy. Boom! <laughs> right. And can you, when people, see, this is why storytelling matters too, right? Yeah. Mama Jen tells these stories about these books, right? And what makes you, what, if you're listening to this podcast, I expect that you hear her talking about these books and you're like, what's that book Mama Jen just talked about? What's that book Mama Jen just said? What's that book, right? <laughs> uh, this is a community show, so we about to take a pause so people can give folks hugs. Oh, <laughs> look. Right? Oh. I don't know who this, this person man, is, but this is very, very important. This woman here got a son with two degrees. Two. Come say hi to the people. Two. CPA and accounting. What you think I can't read? Doing business administration. He got two. From UNO. Okay, we pausing. We taking hug breaks, folks. Let me just say, uh, you know, I do this podcast for many reasons, and one of them is because community is so important. And in this digital age, we get away from it, and COVID has reminded us the importance of connection. Uh, and this is how we keep our children engaged. This is how we keep each other accountable. This is how we show love and keep blessings. Is doing things and being in the community like community bookstore y'all need to come buy some books here for real hey dj come have a seat you in the hot seat you in the hot seat yeah yeah yes indeed hi how you doing i'm good this right here is a native new orleans son mit city urban planning grad executive director of broad community connections advocate friend and um helped us do a lot of great things at ujima cdedc and uh yeah thanks for joining us here at the community table hey, at community book center thanks for having me i know i just called you and was <laughs> like whoa what's happening here but i thought i get i wanted to talk to you for a few minutes because yeah. you know um one of the things that we often talk about here on our journey through the doors of the community book center is this the way the city of new orleans is changing and the gentrification that is happening, which feels muy rapido yeah. during after COVID or yeah. during COVID. So I wanted to sit you down at the table and say you've been back home for what? Since you got out of graduate school a couple of years now? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us how you feeling about this work you've been doing, and especially in this new job along this corridor. Um, Man, that's a loaded question. It is a loaded question. <laughs> You, know, you can choose to answer it however you'd like. I mean, it's cool. It's exciting work to know that I can be part of helping you know just helping my folks have a have a sense of a vision or a plan instead of just feeling like displaced by everything you know what i noticed just being back home and even before then is that like so often things happen to us or we feel like things are happening to us and we don't know how to interject to like vision mm -hmm. what we want it's always like a response to like what we don't want and mm -hmm. what other people bringing us or how we want like a similar thing to what they have. And I think if we really just sat down, it's like, it's not really what we want, right? I know folks saw the uh, the viral video that- uh, Byron Go, yeah. Byron. As Miss <laughs> you know. McKenna said, he wasn't right, but he wasn't wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you know, he's he's one of my neighbors on the block. Like I, I'm I not love too that. far away. And, I um, love Durgeon Wise, it's my favorite street in know, the city of New Orleans. Mine too, it's the trees, man. It's, it's the, the trees. trees. It is the trees. <laughs> 
But I think about like watching that whole video and him just wanting some sense of mutuality with like the permitting process, which was like altered in a lot of ways to control where black folks move, like how they move. So, you know, we used to have block parties, but now there are very intense zoning and decibel requirements for how how loud music is played. And he's like, all right, y'all put these laws on the books, use them for these people. And now it's like the laws don't apply. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I, I, you know what I appreciated about that video, A, is that like we so oftentimes get caught up in this responsibility politics of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like how things look and how things happen and what language we use, right? And we don't recognize the violence that is happening around people every day. It might not physically be violent, right? But it's violent when your neighbors are all of a sudden no longer there because they couldn't pay their taxes and they're gone. It's violent. When you used to be able to go to the corner store and get a huckabuck and now you can't because it's now the store is just too expensive for you, period. And you just yep. can't go in there. Right. Mm. It is violent when you see your white neighbors having a hoedown at the corner. And you know that if you did the same thing, if your people was on the front porch with a speaker, yep. they're calling an OPD. Right. Fast. Fast. And all it takes is like three. And of all you. it takes is three of y'all. I have to say, I did appreciate that the woman who was with her musician friend on the porch doing the performance, when mm. she saw what happened, was like, yo, I ain't know none of that. You, they can't <laughs> record none of that. I'm not doing, I don't get down like that. Like, mm. I appreciated that, too. I think that's, and I know that that she's a white woman and she's a white musician, et cetera. But I, I do appreciate that I, for me not being from here, right? Yeah. I'd say to my, my friends who are from here often, I said, I feel like New Orleans needs his people to come home. The New Orleans mm. need to come home, right? Come home. Bring your, mm-hmm. your talents, your money, all that stuff. Come home, yeah. right? And that there are a few of us who are not from here, right, who work really hard to participate in the ways that New Orleans needs us to participate yeah. and to be members of the community the way we need to be members of the community. Yeah. And that, like, that balance helps because, like, for instance, I'm an urban planner, right? I came from a big mm-hmm. urban city. I was a banker, et cetera, right? I can use my talents for good, not evil, yeah. right? I can help folks in New Orleans figure out how to you get around this, how you get around that, how you make this policy happen, how you create this tax code, blah, 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 because I came from someplace that did those kinds of things. That's good, yeah. right? Now, there's a bunch of folks who come from other places. They want to be like Brooklyn. Ain't no other place like Brooklyn but Brooklyn, and Brooklyn ain't even Brooklyn no more. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. yeah, you make me think often about, well, you're making me think about something that comes up often uh, with my neighbors is that, like, what does the neighbor orientation look like? So by, before people even get on the block, how do you let them know, like, this is how you need to show up mm-hmm. or like you're in violation mm-hmm. and like there is accountability that happens. Like you are mm-hmm. choosing to be a part of a neighborhood. You're not just buying a house to be in a place. Right. Right. And I, I think that's different. I think people are so used to like the suburban approach to home ownership. You just move like, in and that's it. I'm in. Maybe I have a friend on the block, right. but I'll drive across the city right, or get on my bike and go somewhere else. And I don't have a responsibility to anybody else except me and my own. Right. I think that is ubiquitous to New Orleans in modern day, right? Because in most cities, that's not the case, period. It's In some ways, some of folks would say it's like a country way of being, but it's really not, right? It's yeah. just really it's an African way of being. Yeah. But I, I think about the suburban neighborhoods I have lived in where people knew each other. There was definitely like a, hey, I'm your neighbor. I'm bringing you this cake. Yep. Let me tell you about there's a pool down the street. There's a blah, blah, blah. Someone on the block and I'm sure part of it was we the only black people on this on this block, yeah. right? But at the same time, it also felt kind of like, hey, we see you, but not like we see you when we're looking at you. 
right? Yeah. But we see you, and here's some things we want you to know, and we also see you, right? Because mm. it's also important to be seen in both ways, right? Yep. I see you, I also see you. So if something happens, I see you, it's right? That, yeah, you know that, what I mean? that, that acknowledgement, right? You right? Know? But if something happens, I also see you. You know what mm. I mean, right? Like those are important. The neighbor, knowing your neighbors is security, exactly. right? I know Miss Rhonda on one side of me. And Uncle Pete, who was on the other side of me. And now I'm nervous because that house is empty. Mm. You know what I mean? When I always had Uncle Pete. That part. Or I had, you know, uh, Mama Jen across the street. You yeah. know what I mean? Or I had yeah. twins who's, I don't even know their name, but it's no they're twins. Exactly. And the twins, whenever there's a, the power goes out or something, they come on the front porch <laughs> and say, hey, you all right? I say, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's that, lo- it's that sense of, right. of, of love. And it's like. You know, I think when people think family, it's like always this like good feeling of family and not mm-hmm. like I have cousins that I'm like, I'm gonna make sure you're fed. Mm-hmm. We may not always hang out mm-hmm. because you might be that cousin, but we are still in a, <laughs> right. we're still in the tribe and we still have to look out for each other in a right. certain degree, right? Right. And I think that's what maybe Byron was feeling in terms of the frustration, just like, hey, there's a there is a double standard and like we want community, but we want community or folks want community with us when it's convenient. And then when it's no longer convenient, they, they don't want, want to erase all of it. It's not like, hey, I want to leave community and find my my own. It's I want to get rid of what is there and create right. something Right. I mean, different. think about how the women were acted in that video, right? It was like, oh, I'm your neighbor now. Oh, I'm, you know, oh, come join us now, right? It wasn't a thought yeah. before you disrespected the whole blocks yeah and said hey i'm having a party or whatever mm. you didn't want to be mem- you didn't want to be community yeah. until somebody said something to you now it's like oh well why don't you just come join i don't want to yeah. come join i'm an afterthought now yeah right and you hoping i don't cause you no trouble that's yeah. really what that's it is, the yeah right? for him to ask her consistently where are you from and she was like i live here was the answer is she knew what he was asking her. And she knew exactly what she, you know, what he mm-hmm. was trying to get at. And mm-hmm. that one piece just allowed him to have the gas to go for a and throttle. And it, and it was unnecessary. You know, like, first of all, her answer. I, I, OK, y'all know I'm not I'm not from New Orleans. Right. I've been living here for 12 years. Right. Yeah. I know when somebody asks me where I'm from, they are not asking me if I am from if I if I'm from New Orleans. They're yeah. asking me where I'm from now. Because I've been here long enough and sometimes I say things a certain way. People be like, right. Mm, I'm not sure, but I don't think so. I, and I'd be like, no, I, I'm not from here. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that, actually. Yeah. But like, I know that. And these folks know that. Right. But mm-hmm. they want to claim something that's not theirs. Right. That That's how I feel about it. When you know good and well, nobody who is from the city of New Orleans is asking you where you're from. Yep. Right. Now, they might ask where you went to school, right, or who are your people, but they're not asking you where you're from. You know what I mean? And so it's like a double insult. Not only do you not respect me as your neighbor, but now you don't even respect me as a person who's born in this place, whose community you're moving into. I have to say the one thing I appreciated about Baltimore when I was there was that, like, the white folks who was moving to my neighborhood in Baltimore, they were, like, totally opposite. They come on the block and be like, hey, how you doing? My name is Pete. I moved two doors down, blah, blah, blah. I got a dog named Johnny. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I can, you know, like they'd be like, I know I noticed your house, your front thing needs painting, Miss, Miss Jan or whatever. And they'd be like, I'm going to be painting my house. I'll come by and paint your thing. Right? Like yeah. that is the level of neighbor I had. So I have seen what it looks like when white folks move into black neighborhoods and choose to be neighbors. Mm. It can be done. Right? You have to be committed to it. I got white friends here in New Orleans who are committed to being neighbors. Shout out to Marla Nelson, who knows all the people on her block, (laughs) right? (laughs) 
the foolishness and all that. You know, all that. And she's like, it is what it is, right? Yeah. That's what it takes to be a citizen it's, and it's, a neighbor. Yeah. I mean, I have a neighbor who's the same way. White woman in her 60s moved here because her kids were going to school and graduated and needed some caretaking, like life care caretaking, and rented on the block, ended up buying a house on the block maybe a few years later. But, like, when I moved next to her, she was just like, hey, you know, want to make introductions? Like, I don't know if you know this neighborhood, but this is a neighborhood we respect, the people we respect. You know, I want to make sure the kids are valued. I want to make sure that anybody on this block that comes here has the same type of love and care that the folks who have been here have and are willing to offer something and not just come maybe renovate their their building and then like do some front porch thing for them in their own personal crowd but really try to commit to the block that they're on yeah exactly exactly i mean i think that's what's important right and you know i'm amazed when people move to cities and move to urban places and the thing they move to that place for is the thing that they then try to take right so like Mm. in dc when i lived in dc adams morgan behind mm. columbia road was a black brown community right forever they built those fancy condos behind columbia road which is essentially like frenchman street and would be calling the cops on the activity happening on yeah. columbia road it's like hey you bought a condo behind columbia road which mm. is where we all go on friday and saturday the bridge and tunnel crowd is coming from virginia over here every weekend like what made you it was cool till you lived here and you realized it had noise pollution yeah it does they never thought they had had to negotiate with anybody and that's the thing about like you know living in a city versus living in a more rural or pastoral kind of places that you have to share things Mm -hmm. you have to consider other people outside of you and yours like the sidewalk is a little little shorter your house is next to the street a little closer so Mm -hmm. you have a responsibility to be a good neighbor and also to be looking out for other people outside of you. Yeah. I think what I have seen is that city and rural have a similar way of interacting with their neighbors, right? Yep. In a rural place, you know, you know everybody who lives in your community, right? You know the BS they got with them. You know all the things, you know their cousins and grandmothers, mm-hmm. right? In an urban place where people live for a long time, you know those things too. Like even in New York City, people think of New York City as not a city. New York is a city of neighborhoods, Right. I lived on Franklin and Green. I knew the guy who owned the Juan who owned the bodega. I knew Eric who owned the barbershop. I know Jen who owned the cupcake place, right? Mm. I know Paul ran the pizza shop. You know, there's a seamstress down the street. I knew the dude who was the general manager at the Dollar General. Like mm. within five blocks, that's my community. I know all these people. We mm. know these people, right? But when you come from an artificially built place, yeah. which the suburbs are artificially built, there's a order that is required to maintain that little box on the hillside and i think that that is something that in some ways it has to be unlearned yeah you know when you move into an urban place like you have to i mean jane jacob said it best cities are chaotic everything about living in a city is chaos yep. it's not meant to be put in a neat little box right it's meant for you mm-hmm. to have to navigate the things of people right and the things that come along with people mm-hmm. right yeah i mean i mean having lived in the suburbs a little bit it's just there's a, a perpetual like disconnectedness that you have to have it's like your school is miles away like you work and the parents might be in the opposite direction there is no like this is the community center there's no place that people are just trafficking outside of a car right and so at that point you got to maintain in order to do that so you have to stay disconnected yeah if you want to be there 
I lady said to me the other day, I was talking about like subdivisions and stuff and about how I didn't think people were connected. And she reminded me, she said, well, you know, but then people have children and their children are what creates or kind of what creates the connection outside of those houses. And I was like, well, that's great, but there's still something like that doesn't make it whole. You know what I mean? Like, yep. I'm happy to see all the children playing outside. Mm. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to see them playing outside. But I, I, I just think that we we have to get back to knowing each other and spending time with each other if we're really going to make things happen. Because the reality is white supremacy is this is my podcast. So I'm going to cuss. White supremacy <laughs> is, is fucking all of us over. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's something you miss by having that disconnection. There's a reason that our, like, baby boomer white children are moving to urban places because they know that there was a disconnection between what was happening in their lives and that place where they grew up and this place. They don't have necessarily the tools or the understanding to make the connection of why you, you can't take extract that yeah. and drop it into... New Orleans, Baltimore, Brooklyn, Newark, New Jersey, right? And get that experience. But we need each other. What'd you say? We need to be around each other in New Orleans. We need to be at the second line. I need to be able to hang out with my friends on Saturday. Like, that's a thing, right? And the thing people don't talk about in terms of suburbia is that, like, it's killing white people. It's literally killing white people. I mean, I think about, you know, my folks are not too far out away from the city. They're in Cancer Alley, Mm -hmm. right? But people working these power plant jobs... And like they're being poisoned and they're, you know, and they're in the in the river and the lake. Mm-hmm. So there's that part. But then they spend like 20, 30 years commuting back and forth in and out of the suburb to the city to work. They only spend a couple hours during the week. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be able to sleep at home, mm-hmm. but they, you know, but they're never really spending time no. uh, in the place that they're investing in. And they're like, oh, it's an, it's an asset. And it's like, is it an asset? Or a long-term liability. Right. Because, like, you can't even really enjoy it because you're, yeah. you're out 8 to 10 hours. If you, if you got kids, they got programs and stuff to do. You have to get up early so you can leave. And then if you have the weekend, you're probably doing repairs or other stuff with your kids. So When is your time to, to be whole, right? Yeah. I tell you to tell this story all the time. So when I lived in D.C., right, I was a bartender. And so I worked super late. And sometimes I'd be out till 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. And like I was out like it was like four o'clock in the morning on a Sunday or something. And we were coming from Virginia back into the district. And all these. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going into the district. All these cars were coming north on Mm. 95. It was four o'clock on a Sunday on Monday morning. I was like, where are these people coming from? And my friend was like, oh, those are all the people commuting from West Virginia and down South Virginia. Mm. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, because they can't afford to live. They wanted a big house. They can't afford to live. In Northern Virginia or D.C. or whatever. And they won't live in Maryland because Maryland's too black. Right. And he's like, that's their commute. I said, you're telling me these people leave their house at three o'clock in the morning to get to work at six o'clock morning, turn around, do this again. And I know the traffic from D.C. to Richmond at three o'clock is hellish. And I thought to myself, what a miserable life that must feel like sometimes. You bought this big giant asset. Right. That you and your two kids live in with your wife, who also commutes. Mm -hmm. Right. You're coming home from your job. You may or may not get to see your kid play soccer, right? Mm. You may or may not. You come home and go to bed, get up, right? Like you said, right. that's going to kill you eventually. That that stress is going to kill you. Not to mention the fact that we see now elders in the suburbs are not able to sell their houses yep. the way they used to be able to sell them because people aren't looking for a older 80s, 90s construction, yep. right? Which is what was built in the subdivisions, right? And they're building brand new everywhere you look. Yep. which is overdevelopment, right? And so you're going to have all of these little boxes on a hillside that you can't sell. Look at Atlanta, 
right? Atlanta is a prime example. Buy a house five years older, you might be able to afford it. Buy a brand new house, you can't afford it because everybody wants something brand new. It's just, I wonder 10 years from now, if we don't keep this kind of drive toward community and redefining even the suburbs, right? Like yeah. you see people redefining streetscapes and suburbs and trying to create these town centers, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Which is an attempt to get that back. I don't think it works. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I don't think it works. I mean, Reston tried it, right? The master, yeah. they were that they were the original master plan community. I lived in Reston. I didn't feel nothing community about it. It was real pretty behind them trees, all them little shopping centers that are behind the trees and such. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. I didn't feel connected to anybody or anything. You know? Yeah. I'm often like challenged by this idea of that wealth with home ownership because that's the normally the pitch to folks, especially younger folks. They're like, hey, get a house. Mm-hmm. You own it, pass on wealth to your kids. And right now, you know, we have this national movement across black and brown folks around gaining wealth through home ownership. But I'm like, I'm looking at my parents. I'm looking at my grandparents. What does right. it cost them to invest in a place that they don't share? They have to maintain themselves through their own cash flow. And by the end of it, like, who knows who will inherit it and how. Right. And so, you know, they have single family homes. Right. You know, maybe maybe a double, you know, yeah. maybe a multifamily property, but but that's yeah. investing in community a different that's way. A, yeah. I'm gonna tell you what, my father bought a double. It's a big old double. And he bought it so that when I went to college, he could pay for college, right? Rather than having to pay the mortgage. The house paid for itself. And then he bought it because when he retired, the house paid for itself, right? Mm-hmm. And I look at my great aunt when she left Alabama, she and her husband bought a main house in the back and they bought a house in the front that was like it's three family. I think it's a three family, right? Mm-hmm. Some level of my cousins have lived in that three family over the years forever, right? My cousin Michael now occupies his mother's house, right? Mm-hmm. When I think of how our elders bought houses and property, it wasn't for wealth. It was for someone. Mm-hmm. It was for so that everybody, somebody always had some place to stay, yep. right? My great grandmother lost her restaurant in the Great Depression, went went back to being a domestic, saved her money, bought a little tiny house, 22, 23 Mongol in Kansas City, Missouri, right? When my great-grandmother died, my Aunt Joanna lived in that house, somebody mm. else lived in the house. My grandfather made sure we kept that house so that if someone in the family ever needed somewhere to live, there was mm. going to be a place yeah. that was home. I think we talked about this earlier with this 80s generation, our parents who came up in corporate 80s America, Right. Bought the idea that the single family ranch style tract house, as Jerry Lewis would say, (laughs) is the way to go. And then your kids grow up, you get older and you can't even navigate around that place anymore because you have to drive everywhere. And it's an asset. But like you said, is it more a liability because your kids don't want it? Right. Because their whole life they've been taught, hey, this is okay, you know, you're here, this is the family house, or you're here, and then you go off, you go to school and get away from here and go experience everything. But never Mm -hmm. is it, this is our space, Mm -hmm. and we are maintaining this space so that you can inherit. It is Mm -hmm. overture. I think that's also part of that 80s generation. Like, hey, you have a role to play, but, like, this is our asset to manage. Right. And so now we have a whole bunch of folks who are losing their property because of, like, the lack of, legacy planning and making sure people have the right titles when folks pass away but also folks who are like the hell with the suburbs i'm out i'm good mm-hmm. i'm gonna go get my own in it's almost city. like the reverse right but think about it it was the hell with the city right yeah. white folks left the city but don't act like black flight didn't happen yeah. right i appreciate that my great aunt and my great grandmother never sold that house and that and cleveland went through all kind of stuff mm. riots ge closing forward closing Blah, blah, blah. The house is still there. Mm. Now here we are. Cleveland is gentrifying, 
And I'm like, okay. right but they never because it was like always going to be a place for us to be Mm -hmm. right or always going to be a place for the family to be my father's made it very clear that that house that that they own is me and my brother's house Mm -hmm. right and we are to keep that house right even if we rent it to other people we are to keep that house and i'm sure my brother's gonna listen to this podcast i want you to know that that's (laughs) still the plan bro (laughs) and i'm going to buy a double or a four unit and you know live in it because a one of the greatest things about new orleans is like the double rental idea right where you knew you could go find somebody who had a double and rent from them i appreciate that i even though i don't like the way they look there's a bunch of new doubles (laughs) being built around town (laughs) some of them look pretty bad some of them look really good. Shout out to New Corp. But yeah, I appreciate that change. You know, all good things come back around, I guess. Yeah. The hope for me yeah. is to just make sure that as we do this, we're not, we don't just get caught in that whole like buy back the block narrative. Right. Because there are folks who are talking about like depressed property values. Like, you know, I'm from the East, but I'm from a part of the East, New Orleans East, that is often overlooked in this conversation about what's happening. So mm. you have like, your wealthy folks, you know, the, mm-hmm. the aspiring New Orleans East of the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then you have what folks are talking about now, which is like, oh, there's low income housing happening. People pushing Section 8 in these. Well, I'm the part that I'm from is where like a whole bunch of folks from Mississippi came, mm-hmm. you know, five, maybe five streets wide. Mm-hmm. And my great grandparents came in the early 50s, actually, like 50, I think of 50 or 51. But they came with their siblings. It was about eight of them deep that all came. They had kids. Their kids had kids and they all stayed in the same neighborhood. Now, was it wealthy? Hell no. Mm-hmm. But my grandmother was in school with her cousins. My mom was in school with her second cousins. I was in school with my third cousins and we knew them. Mm-hmm. And we shared homes. And to think that like my great grandparents had 11 kids in a two bedroom house, not at all at one time, but 11 kids, seven girls, four boys and said the same thing. Like, this is the community house. Right. And not, okay, when we're done, we're going to make money off of this and try to, you know, because property right. values can go up and displace people as well as. The, oh, yeah. You know. And we can't get caught up in the in black capitalism. Right. Ooh. Like this is the conversation we've been having is about black capitalism. Yeah. Right. When you think about I follow a dude on Instagram called live rent free. Right. Mm. And his thing is about building your wealth so you can control your own life. Right. But one of the things he talks about is buy a multifamily and live in it. Yeah. Right. Charge reasonable rent so you know your 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 cash flow is always going to be good so that you can do other things yeah. in your community. That is a good strategy, right? What's not a good strategy is you like, oh, I'm going to come up off this Section 8, right? I'm going to be a crappy landlord. Yeah. I'm going to put other black people and other black people's children through trash, yeah. right? Because Section 8 going to pay me fair market rent and I'm about that capitalist dollar. We can't do yeah. that. If that's the case, we might as just close the doors. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, there's this kind of like secret talented 10th energy that's like, okay, I'm going to buy back the block because everybody else is lazy. Mm-hmm. Kind of. There's right. this thing that's there that's like, well, if you can, if I can do it, then surely you can. And I right. think we have to. And everybody doesn't need to own. Yeah. Like, housing is a continuum. People need to be sheltered and feel safe. Right. And people don't understand like the content, like the, they say it's cheaper to own a house than it is to rent. But if you do the numbers, nobody's counting the, the, <laughs> all the fees incurred from maintenance. You don't, right. you don't, you don't add that in. You don't right. add the closing when costs. When the in. roof goes, you responsible for the roof. You can't call Mr. Johnny and say, Hey, my roof fa- fell in. Yeah. You're responsible. So if you don't have extra money to put aside, that house is not cheaper than renting. Yeah. It might be more 
you might have more control to yep. some degree, but you definitely it's not necessarily. But that yeah, that obsession with control and ownership, right, right? That we have to talk about is like yes, we need to own more spaces, but how do we move from ownership to stewardship? Like, what right. does it mean for us to be responsible for something instead of thinking we have to control them, manipulate everything? So. Right. If I'm a steward, does that mean everything I have eventually will pass on to somebody else? So maybe my hand isn't closed so tight mm-hmm. to like hoard it. You can't take it with you. Right. You cannot die today and take that house you bought with you. Right. Mm. And I have heard people get caught up in this idea of like, it's mine. I earned it. Okay. It is yours and you earned it and you won't be here forever. Right? Put it in the casket with you. Put it in the casket with you. <laughs> or people be like, well, I'm not going to be here. They can figure it out. And then you have created all yeah. kinds of turmoil and like chasms in your family. That's now your legacy. <laughs> that is now your yeah. legacy. Your legacy is leaving behind this mess. That's your legacy. Now, I know some people don't, don't have time, don't have the means necessarily to think about it. But if we know people out there, if you know folks out there in your family who either don't have the time or the means or don't know where to start, mm-hmm. you need to start having conversations, folks. Right. You need to start having conversations. Now, people might resist you, but it ain't won't be because you didn't have a conversation. Yeah. Right. And we need to start being loving each other in that way to hold ourselves accountable that way. Like when you yeah. leave here, we want to make sure your kids are OK. Even if they decide to sell the dog on thing, at least it's clear what you wanted. Right. Yeah. So, DJ, thank you so much for, you for uh, jumping me. in here and sitting down with us. We're going to uh, try to get Mama Vera off the phone and wrap up this <laughs> community winding book thing so that my podcast producer can go home <laughs> and I can get to the park. Hey, thank you. <laughs> this is a great conversation. Thanks so much. And I'm really looking forward to the work that you do at BCC and the ways that I know you're going to collaborate with others because you're just a collaborator by nature. Let us know how we can help you here on the podcast in any way. And we We'd be happy to do that. For sure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Have a great day. Mama Vera. (laughs) (laughs) I was like. This is the ever. I can't wait to hear the final take on this thing and see the final video. People are going to be like, what was that? It was amazing. Well, Mama Mama Vera, thank you for getting off the phone and stopping the business of the bookstore for a moment to. It was a few minutes of your brilliant time. Everyone, welcome Mama Vera Warren to the... Warren Williams. Warren Williams. Whoops. 25 years. 25 Williams. I missed the hyphen. I wonder I if we're I don't do can. no hyphen. Oh, no hyphen? Just, vi- just Warren Williams. Yeah. I wonder if we got some cousins in common somewhere in Alabama. Well, Mama Vera, thanks for joining us here on the Get in the Cypher podcast. Today's ep- This is episode two of Get in the Cypher called The Art of Storytelling. Welcome to the community. So, Mama Vera, Mama Jen started telling us this story about how she started being a part of the community book center and like it was sort of an organic situation and y'all have been together now a long time, huh? 25 years, is that what Mama Jen said? Something like that? Longer than that? Longer than that. Probably longer than that. So, can you tell us how did you come upon wanting to start the community book center? Well, my interest and passion has always been about the preservation and proper representation of our history and culture. And initially, I wanted to have a museum where that could happen. And I ended up substitute teaching and going into schools and realizing that the books um, that represented our people, our history and our culture were not present in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they existed because I had a personal library. Mm -hmm. So I began bringing my books into the school, sharing with the students. Mm -hmm. 
And I noticed that it had a profound effect on them to see books Mm -hmm. with images of themselves or people that look like them with similar cultural experiences. So as a result of that, other teachers and administrators wanted to borrow the books. And as a result of that, I couldn't loan my stuff out. Right. I got the idea from a friend, Kweku Kushandana out of Baton Rouge, who was doing selling books out of his home. I said, if he could do it in Baton Rouge, I could do it in New Orleans. And so Community Book Center was born in my parents' home in the Lower Ninth Ward with just placing a simple order, 13 titles, and um, a $300 investment. And, and the rest is it. the, it's black history, that's as it. they say. That's it. I hear so many amazing things from this. A, that it doesn't take a lot for an idea. You just have to start somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. It wasn't a lot of money that you had. Oh, right? no. And you no. just knew that you wanted to do something for the community and you knew that there was a need. You know, if exactly. we want to use capitalist terms, we could say you knew there was a market and you met that need. And here we are 30 years later with this amazing. 38, almost 30, 40. Almost 40 years later. Yeah. And the and the book center has been through a lot over the years, right? I mean, oh, yeah. the, the it's been through a lot. Of it's been reading, a lot you know? of places. Right. Yeah, and like I said, it was more a home-based community service than the initial idea of having a business. And we still are trying to get to the business part because we still <laughs> want to, you know, operate as right. a community service. And a right. resource, which we are. Right. We still are a community service yeah. and a resource. And, you know, I know that when things work, it's hard sometimes to make a pivot, right? You know, like it's hard to be like, well, we've been doing it this way. How do we make a pivot? But I just want to say, I think it's great what's happened over the last couple of years with the redesign of the store and the storage with using that new system for book ordering, for yeah. being on bookstore.com. Is that what it's called? Bookstore? It's bookshop. Bookshop.com, which I think is revolutionized individual community bookstores hi avery come here avery she just had a birthday and she just had a birthday and i haven't seen her in forever hold yes. on hug break yeah you see all this be going on going down at all, the community book all center the things you see yeah. the people you haven't seen you have conversations you didn't have plan on having. that's why we said we're more than a bookstore we're more than a bookstore. meeting place gathering meeting place, place right all of that and that is why this place is important community is important and community, community has to have a place to connect right mm-hmm. and while virtual things are great this place is a physical manifestation of community mm-hmm. rolling so you said you've been in, in a lot of different places. You, I know I you know you were on Poland Avenue and you were on Ursuline and this North is Broad. North Broad. Okay. Right. And now here. And now here. And how long have you been here on Bayou Road? Since two thousand and three. Two thousand and three. September two thousand and three. So a couple of years before Katrina. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so you've weathered all of these storms literally and figuratively. What keeps you going? What keeps you here, right? Especially the book business is a tough one. Tell me about it. I just think the fact that the same thing that we were striving for then, there's still a need for it now. Mm-hmm. You would think that there would be a big change, mm-hmm. but we still need more representation, not only in books for our children, but just in terms of our entire community where we are telling a story, we control a narrative, and then beyond that, having more power in publishing and the whole business of books. Right. Right. You know, there is a whole business. It is. Right. And as we say uh, 
uh, you know, I work in education and representation in education, of course. And we say all the time it's important for us to be able to run the table, right? Yeah. So we need to be able to run the table from not only creating, but to to managing our creations exactly. and selling our creations exactly. and collecting on those creations, right? So I lost my train of thought, and then I'm going to get back to it, and you're going to edit this whole part out. <laughs> So that's something it's live podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's what happens with live podcast. Yeah. So, you know, Mama Jen was good at sort of connecting for us like the ways we that reading is important to the development of young people, right? So she talked about stories that help children do, do decode sentences. And she talked about stories that help us think critically about how we uh, respond to trauma, those kinds of things. How is the bookstore important? to us helping young people learn how to learn how to appreciate reading and what are you what have you done over the years to like attract young people to picking up a book because it's not a thing right you know it's not so much a thing as it used to be because we have the tablet everybody hands their kid a tablet so can you tell us what you think about connecting young people back to reading in this digital age and how you have thought about it well i think that it it is important to be able and and particularly since the pandemic where everything for the most part has been screen time to just provide children with books and materials that are fun mm-hmm. you know it doesn't always have to be about you got to learn something you got you know you got to make it fun because then you you don't want it to feel like a punishment or anything like that but i always find that books that are written by young people right are, are good ways to connect are good ways to connect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know with young people because they can relate and the the stories are relevant and i think that also um, we did a program some years ago with Urban Bush Women, mm-hmm. and it was we did a component of that program, which was write or W R I T E mm-hmm. to read. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have a right to read, but we need to write to read, right? To read, yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. so in that we were putting a charge to our young people to recognize the importance of our history, the importance of our culture, and to take the responsibility as the future guardians and gatekeepers of that culture. Absolutely. And so, therefore, we have to be the archivists. We have to be the documentarians. We have to be the ones who are telling a story because it's the Zimbabwean proverb that says, until the lion tells his own story, then the tale will continue. To right. glorify the hunter. So we have a lot of young lions and lionesses, and so we have to create the environments for them to one want to read, want to study, want to learn about self, mm-hmm. and then take charge of that culture and that history. And yeah, bring you bring up something very important when you say the whole thing about like it becoming a punishment, right? Like I think about yeah. the way I learned to read versus my brother. I think so many people, because he resisted sometimes reading, it became a pun. It became like a, a chore and a punishment, right? But when we recognize that, like a lot of times, young boys like to read things that are nonfiction. So when you change yeah. the material, they might be more interested. But like you said, it has to be relevant. We have to meet young people where they are. We have to right. meet the reader where they are. And right. so, and and what we finding that there are a lot of graphic novels mm-hmm. that are now 
beginning to hold and attract the attention of young people. So that's that's a way. That's a way. That's a way. That's a way. And huh. I have a call to get on. I know you for do. Four thirty. Okay. Uh, around literacy. <laughs> it's a literacy. It literally <laughs> is. It's a literally is a literacy call. Well, Mama Vera, thank you so much for letting us occupy the back of the community bookstore. Remember the whole Occupy movement? <laughs> I do. Yeah, so we are, yeah, Occupy CBC. Occupy CBC. Hashtag. Yeah, we should create that hashtag. New hashtag. Folks, uh, you heard a lot of things today. You heard about uh, gentrification. You heard about engaging young people in reading. You heard about the importance of storytelling. All of those things make community. And it is here in community where we grow and we change and we learn and we connect so thank you mama vera for thank being you. on the podcast today thank you mama jen who's over there waxing philosophical i'm sure right thank you dj thank you anisa, ashanti. ashanti thank you anisa for um your extended time today thank you avery, for popping thank in. You, avery my homie avery for popping in all these people are amazing Yanni minded yanni didn't get in huh no uh-uh no that's a cat the cat didn't get it, no. But the we heard Mama Jen. We heard Mama Jen saying hi to Yanni earlier, and so yeah. So I'm just gonna plug the community book center. If you don't know where it is, and you've never been, 2523 Bayou Road. 2523 Bayou Road. You need to come in here and buy some books, spend a little time, hear something you need to hear, learn something you need to learn about the place where you live. If you're here in New Orleans, and if you're just visiting, come learn about the place that you're visiting, and um. You know, this is a reminder. Spend your money in your neighborhood. And thank you for joining us here on episode two of Get in the Cypher podcast, The Art of Storytelling. Welcome to the community. 